word for us and praise, and then we'll get into it. Good morning. Okay, we're going to take a look at Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they are nope. always... fast forward to verse 9. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We did that one last week. <laughs> he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to enter to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man will be, by the prophets, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This thing was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he, required, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped 
and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, where he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, we thank you that you are a merciful God, that you are the one who is ready to um, give mercy. You are the one who walks in compassion. You are the one who sees our need, Lord. And you are the one alone who can satisfy that need. Father, thank you that you are the one who opens our eyes to our desperation, Lord, and shows us our need for humility. Father, and fills us with your spirit that we might walk with you. We pray, Father God, that you would continue to teach us and that we would remain in um, that stance of humility as we hear your word. Father, help us to receive your truth. Help us to embrace conviction of the Holy Spirit and run to you, Lord, that you might continue to do what you so faithfully do in rescuing us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jackie. Um, that is quite the section of Scripture, and I think we could probably preach 10 sermons out of just that text by itself. Um, so I might go a little long today, and we've pushed back second Sunday just to make room for that. Totally kidding. All right. The kingdom is built on humble, dependent surrender. From all of that that you just heard, as told by Luke, the story of Christ and his ministry, the kingdom is built, the way of the kingdom is humility, dependent, and surrender. Every one of us in all generations is familiar with the story of the three little pigs, right? In, in some fashion, you know this story, right? Those that built their houses and faced danger. One built with straw, another with wood, and then a third with brick. And they were under siege from who? The big bad wolf, right? And there's many layers to this tale. And if you become an English major and take like literary analysis in some form, you can um, write a whole book about all that's going on in this story. And it's been retold, actually, the same story in myriad 
different ways throughout our history. And there's allusions to opportunity in the story. It gets at the availability of resources. And like none of the pigs pick what they make. It's just somebody's coming along the road and has this resource. And so that's what they take to make their house. And there's even encounters with violence as like a, a daily normative thing in life. So there's just a lot going on in the three little pigs story. But the story always leaves us as kids just wondering... What should we build our homes with, right? And if your child first learns that, and then they come and they check your walls, and they're like, what is our home built with? And it's wood. Everything in California is built by, with wood, and the termites are eating all of it. So that was a joke. No? Stacy woke up one day. I hear the termites munching in our wall. I, <laughs> I don't think that's what she heard. But never wept. But whatever. Right, So it's important to think of like, what are you building your home with, but then also what are you building a life with? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, that he gets at this same idea. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words, his teaching, what he's been uh, traveling and telling people, and, and does not do them, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So we determine to be people as followers of Christ that build on the rock with brick that will last. This is Jesus in his ministry telling us what the kingdom is actually built of. And in the preaching of the kingdom, in its arrival, people are increasingly asking how to get into the kingdom. How do they see it built in their lives? Essentially asking what are the elements that go into the kingdom and how do we participate in it? How is it built? We have a big section of scripture. There's a parable. There's interactions with Jesus and others. There's healing and salvation that are all surrounding this ominous prediction of death. And there's very memorable bits of the Bible in this section. But they all go together to tell us this story and this truth of the kingdom. That it is built on humble, dependent surrender. In our text, in the flow of the text, there are three um, I tell you or truly I say to you statements from Jesus. And as the way of the kingdom, those are the three pillars that we see him making clear to those that are listening they need to look for. And so we're just going to take those three things in turn and then see immediate examples of them worked out in the lives of people that are following Jesus and what it what actually brings it all to life for us. And hopefully we'll walk away hopeful and at the same time humble, dependent, and surrendered to the Lord. So remember where we are in the story of Luke's gospel. I know we're progressing at quite a clip. We're on our way to Advent where we'll finish our study of this gospel. But in this section, Jesus and his followers are on their journey to Jerusalem. And he's been teaching on how to use resources that you've been gifted in life, how to expect the kingdom coming in full, and how followers of Jesus are to wait for the return of the Son of Man. And he essentially says, as we talked about last week, don't trust in your stuff. Don't even look back. Instead, just cry out for justice and trust that the Father will care for you. 
Then in this teaching, he begins in some interaction telling a parable, and he establishes for us that first point, that the way of the kingdom is humble. And I love it from Luke, as he says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So right off the bat, we know where this story is going to go because Luke's telling us what this parable is going to be about, about who it's specifically speaking to. And he says, in the kingdom, it's not your own righteousness that you trust. And Jesus then tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we generally, in the modern church, we dislike Pharisees. Anybody like team Pharisee? Like, probably not. We hate when people actually call us a Pharisee. We don't think it's cool to be Pharisees, right? But in the first century world, in this environment that Jesus is teaching in, these were the Jews that were the model for others to emulate. They were who you aspired to be like in your piety and your performance of the religious duty. These were the best. One writer says the Jews of Palestine in the first century did not think of the Pharisees as hypocrites or religious show-offs, but the Pharisees were the most respected religious group in Jesus' day. So sometimes we skip that perspective when we read because we know they're the hypocrites. We know they're those that warp the law to their own benefit and oppress others around them. And That is something we have to mark and recognize that the crowd would have seen the Pharisee as the good person as the story begins. But then there's also the tax collector, and we get the disdain for the tax collector, right? Like some of us, if you just say the word tax, we might break out in like an anxious sweat, right? Or maybe that's just me. But we're still the tax collector in the story, and in that day are the sellouts, right? They're Jews that are collecting taxes for Rome from their own people. So they're instruments of the occupation. And both of those characters come into the temple to pray. First, the Pharisee, standing by himself for all others to see and hear, says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast and I give tithes of all my stuff. And so, amen, is right. He's essentially saying, I am good, is his refrain. And it is good to be just, to be faithful, to be obedient to the law. But it is actually the wrong place of assurance for us. And it's all ruined when it's mixed with contempt for others. Like, it doesn't matter how moral you are when you treat others with uh, contempt. There is a real problem. And the tax collector, on the other hand, he just stands far off. He didn't want people to pay attention to him as he's in the temple court. So he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we have before us the way of conceit and the way of contrition, of humility before God. And we understand the impulse here. Because We should want to live right, to recognize the law of God and live by it, to have a moral life. But viewing the law as the way of righteousness comes up short because it's always just out of reach for us. We might negotiate with the law. We might try to manipulate it to our benefit so that we don't have to keep all of it, but then fully get the benefits of it. And this is what the Pharisee has wrong about his standing before God. It's not... 
His righteousness, right? And Luke says, he tells this parable to people who are trusting in their own righteousness. It's not a righteousness at all that can be trusted in. And Paul, the apostle, to a church attempting to earn salvation by keeping the law, he says this in Galatians 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So it's just true that the law can't produce in us the perfection that it requires, right? No matter how hard you try, how much of it you keep, you will not achieve the perfection that is required to stand before a holy God. And Paul will go on to say, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. One man in this parable trusts in his own righteousness, in his ability to keep the law, and the other knows full well that he's a sinner. Just that truth that the law is meant to humble us, that we would be those that cry out for mercy before God. And Jesus even says in the first I tell you statement, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And justified, this is significant. He's made right before God in this moment because he's cried out for mercy in his humble situation. And Jesus shows us clearly here the difference between these two men. God loves and accepts the person who humbly looks for mercy while he rejects the one who exalts himself. As the old poem goes, two men went to pray or rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high where the other dare not send his eye. One nearer to the altar trod, the other to the altar's God. And the crowd has been missing the point of Jesus' teaching and he sets it before them again. And it's for us too. One pastor says, what Jesus said about the Pharisee was designed to shock us so that we would look at our own lives. That's who we would see. And it's at best if if the best and most religious people of Jesus' day were not pleasing to God, then everyone is in trouble. In other words, the point of the story is that the Pharisee is just like us. And we are meant to be like the tax collector. So the way the kingdom is humble, it's honest, it's vulnerable, it recognizes its need and it declares it before God. So we look at this truth and we repent of the little tallies of comparison that you keep between you and between others, that I'm uh, less of a sinner than this person or I've kept more of the law or look at all the things that I've done. And we just give that up and we say, Lord, we're turning from that. We're giving up trusting in ourselves. Now, hear hear this. You are, in fact, wonderful people. You have amazing potential. Some of us have even proven success. Your life that you're living is a moral life. You think of things from the right perspective. You need to hear that. But you cannot match, even as good as you are, all of the perfection that is required. 
And kingdom citizens, we just know this, and then we humbly ask for mercy. And the good news of the gospel in this parable is that God is merciful to those who admit that they are sinners, to those who are contrite in heart. And we do not have to pretend that we are righteous, guys. We can admit that we have struggles and sins, and this is the way to forgiveness and paradoxically to righteousness. And what a model Lawrence gave to us. Most places you go and it's, it's a performance like we're so great. We've got it all together. And to be able to come and say honestly, humbly, like I'm crying out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen. So we're going to keep following Jesus with humility because the way of the kingdom is humble. And then the way of the kingdom is dependent we see in the story, people are responding. They're coming around Jesus and they're wanting blessing for themselves and for their children. And Luke tells us that they're bringing even infants to Jesus. And it's a fascinating story that's unfolding here in John Ortberg, a pastor in one of his books. He believes that those, those infants in the same vein of who Jesus has been calling into the kingdom are actually infants with disability. It, disciples at this moment, they rebuke the people that are bringing the children because surely Jesus has bigger fish to fry, right? He's got to meet with the religious elite. He's got to meet with the big crowds. And children then in the first century, as is increasingly the case in our society, which is so scary, they have no rights, right? They're treated like property, and the rabbi doesn't have time for kids is kind of the message that his disciples are giving the crowd. And friends, you should always judge your leaders by who they don't have time for. And Jesus stops it. He's like, no, don't hinder the children from coming. And he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then we get the second statement. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And we've done a lot with this verse throughout the history of the church. And you even probably went to somewhere in your mind thinking of what this meant. And rightfully, we see that the kingdom is not earned, but it's received, right? The children are to receive it. But we've come up with an endless list of what it means to have childlike faith. And these are just a few that I randomly pulled from different resources. One person says, having faith like a child means we should have confidence in the promises of Christ and faith, even in situations where we cannot see. So it's kind of like a blind faith that you just move into it. Another person said, a humble, unpretentious faith could rightly be called a childlike faith. That's fair. Childlike faith is often described as a faith that does not doubt, question, or seek explanations. It just believes. Don't listen to that um, one. And then another person said, becoming like a child means that we maintain the wonderful and beautiful characteristics and qualities of children that life in this sinful world tends to beat out of us. Right. Like what? Like tenderness of conscience, openness about emotions and feelings, creativity and imagination, wonder and awe, joy, eternal hope, playfulness and humor, trust, easy forgiveness, undying love, boundless exuberance and energy, always thinking the best about life and other people and being willing to learn and grow. I like that one too, right? We want to be happy. We want to be uh, playful and carefree. And I suppose these are all fine ways of viewing our response to the kingdom. There's meant to be joy when we receive the kingdom. 
But in this interaction with Jesus, these are infants. So how are they receiving the kingdom? They're being brought to it by someone else. I get so uh, irritated by banter on Christian radio. And so it, I blame Christian radio for my listening to NPR. Um, <laughs> at least I know where they're coming from, right? And so this week I was just listening in, in California. They've been debating in the California Assembly uh, Proposition 1, which is a constitutional amendment to codify the right to an abortion in California. And as law stands now, California law permits abortion up to viability. And so the conversation was about uh, viability. And that's that, uh, the ability to live and thrive outside the womb. And so even those that are pro-choice, well, oh yeah, that makes sense. We should have that as scientific declaration. And when they realize that their constitutional amendment does not have that prohibition in place, they are getting a little worried. And scientifically, because of the resources and how medicine has advanced, the age of viability actually increasingly gets younger. Children are being kept alive and made to thrive younger and younger. And the reality is, though, value is never gained by ability. And when you think of it, no one can live long without care. Like if the infants that are born, that are brought here before Jesus, they have to be brought, right? They're utterly dependent in this moment on their parents or caregivers for food, protection, shelter, and nurturing. They are completely dependent. And even we went for a hike in Arizona this weekend and my aunt's like, yeah, I've been, there's no trail. We just walk until we see these wild horses, which is a terribly dangerous thing to do in the desert. You know, that's how you want to live your retirement. Okay, it will come. The end will come quickly. (laughs) But it's like if I just said that to even my 10-year-old kid or my 12-year-old kid or even Jonas, if I just sent him out there, yeah, here's no water. Don't take any water. Just go on until you see some horses. Like he may not survive. He's going to need care. He's going to need help. He will probably get to a place where he's going to need somebody to rescue them, right? They're certainly old enough. They're old enough to move around, to have opinions, but they're still dependent on others for things. And in the text, this is flowing right from not trusting in self-righteousness to something that is so much deeper. To dependence, full dependence on someone else for salvation, for life. The truth is, dependence is tremendously easy for us in the church. We chant it, we rally around it when we feel weak. But it's also the way of the kingdom, even when we feel like we can handle things and we have it all together. When we recognize that we bring only our need before Jesus, we see all of the resource to meet that need comes from him. And in the kingdom, you don't depend on him for entry and then work your way through it. You depend on him from the beginning and to the end for your justification and your sanctification and your coming glorification and everything in between. Peter will write to the church, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. 
And while we read this, we have a tendency to make childlikeness something to perform. We have to become something. We have to do something. Instead, all who experience the power of the kingdom must become like children by recognizing they are dependent on God for everything. There's nothing that you could do to qualify for his forgiveness, for citizenship in his kingdom. Edward Schweizer, a professor of New, Test- uh, New Testament in Switzerland, says, But this is the reason they are blessed, just because they, the little children, have nothing to show for themselves. They cannot count on any achievements of their own. Their hands are empty like those of a beggar. Jesus enlarges the promise to include everyone. With an authority such as only God can claim, he promises the kingdom to those whose faith resembles the empty hand of a beggar. And such faith is possible because they have no achievements of their own nor any conceptions of God which can intrude between them and him. We wrestle with this because unlike the infants, we ponder worthiness. We want to earn it. We want to be worthy of what he gives us. And it's why the questions come to Jesus. It's why the crowd is asking him. It's why there's an endless number of books that have been written and sermons that have been preached on being good enough. The little child takes its food, its parents' love and protection because they are given without beginning to think of whether it deserves them or whether it is important enough to merit such attention. So must we all receive God's kingdom and enter into it. Like the sinner crying for mercy, we receive it knowing we don't deserve it. And that is the mind-blowing reality of the gospel. This is the fabric of the kingdom, dependence on another for all that we need. And increasingly, as I interact with different partners and and help encourage other churches or think about um, who are to be leaders, even in our own church, the question that comes up increasingly more and more, more than competence, more than experience, is reliability. Are they reliable? And friends, I am here to tell you, Jesus is reliable. He is our help. He can be depended on when no one else can. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And we need that reminder today. Truly, I say to you, receive the kingdom like little children. So in the same way with humility, we repent of independence, of seeing Jesus as part of the mix alongside your perfect theology or your attendance record or your capability. And instead, we live dependent on Jesus, on his spirit to get you through, to carry you all the way home. That's why this story is here for us. That's why Jesus interacts with the children and says, let them come to show humility and dependence. And thirdly, the way of the kingdom is surrender. And next comes the interaction with the rich young ruler. 
of all of this section of scripture, you've probably heard more sermons on this interaction than any of the others. This is the piggy that has the brick house, right? And he comes and he calls Jesus good. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 only God is good. And so it's just a brief confirmation of who he is. And we could preach a whole series of sermons on that one sentence. But wanting to know still then the way into eternal life. He asks, how do I get the promise of the kingdom, essentially? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus, like a good rabbi, says, well, you know the commandments. And then he lists five of them. And the ruler says that he's done all of these from his youth. He's kept the law. Isn't that enough? And when Jesus heard this, he said to, them, said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This is, this is huge. This is, we can't miss the significance of this interaction. And I can't help but hear Jesus' warning about his return that came in chapter 17 when he said, On that day when the Son of Man returns, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Because there's something more worthwhile coming. Rather than a future reliance on wealth and possessions, Jesus is calling this ruler to sacrifice it all now. In the present. To give it up. Yes, you've kept the law. Great, good job. What you lack is get rid of everything and give it to the people. And Now, we have to understand, this is not a command for all of us. Um, so some of you are relieved, but actually, if you think you could never do this, this might actually be a command for you. Because the rich young ruler has put his, you know, his, this is where his hope is, right? In his wealth, in his resource, in his comfort. But maybe it wasn't quite what he had hoped for. Because I, I wonder, as we study this, does the question betray a dissatisfaction with his satisfaction in those things? Jesus tells him that real treasure is available. It's within reach. Just kill your trusting in your self-righteousness and contempt for others by giving it all away to those that you had contempt for. Become poor to bless the poor is the command here. And then you will find what you're looking for and you can follow Jesus. What a proposition this is for us and for this rich ruler Luke says, but when he heard these things, what? He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Not like just wealthy, but like the one percenter or less, like significant wealth. Used to hang out with a pastor who used to say that he believed this man was saved, that he was just sad about giving up what he loved, but he was wrong. Right. Just because elsewhere we see Jesus that will tell parables and stories about people who with joy give up all they have to get what they most treasure. And so I think he's sadly lost. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the question that makes the ruler sad is, is it worth it? Is the kingdom worth it? Is eternal life with it? Is, it? is following Jesus 
worth it? And do you see value in the kingdom, in eternal life with this king? And certainly it is worth all that we have, I promise. And Jesus calls him in this moment to surrender it all, and he calls us to surrender too. And uh, just as a way of the kingdom that we're to live surrendered unto him. We surrender our unbelief. We surrender the things we've been putting our trust and hope in. The question for us is, do we see the value? Because I, I think that question actually shapes like all of our lives. And the truth is, uh, everyone in here, we all have the exact same amount of time each and every day, each and every week in our lives. Yet we have very different priorities, so we all use that time in vastly different ways, don't we? The same when it comes to the kingdom, to a life surrender to Jesus, is how we view what is the highest priority, what is the thing of greatest value, and how do we go after that? Tim Keller used a really helpful analogy. And uh, just think of me offering you a gift for $500. And what's the question that comes when I say, if you give me $500, I'm going to give you a gift. You'll say, well, what is it, right? And it's like, well, you just pay and you'll get the prize. You need to know what it is. And so if I tell you that for $500, I will give you the pen that I wrote this sermon with. Because I will. Anybody? Any takers? No, right? I, I used an Apple pencil. So that's at least worth 100 bucks, right? Um. But you don't want that. You don't want to pay $500 for that. But if I tell you that the gift is a brand new Porsche, you can get the SUV or the coupe, whatever you want, but it's a brand new Porsche. Is that worth giving up $500? Yeah, right? Come on, you're human. Take that Porsche. And even if you, you didn't want to drive it, you could sell it and get your hundred grand out of it, Right? Even if you didn't have, does anybody have 500 bucks cash on them? I want to see you after church. Right? You don't, right? So what do you do? You come to me and you say, just give me the day and I'll be back. I will get the $500. And if you don't have $500 in your bank, you're selling like the gift your parents gave you for Christmas or whatever on um, offer up and all these things. So you can get $500. So you can get the treasure that is more valuable than that $500 or all of the property that you would sell to get that $500. And this is the proposition of the kingdom. Whatever we have is never more valuable than the kingdom of God. And Jesus, friends, is of infinite worth. And he invites us to treasure him so much so that everything else is like freely just surrendered to him. And I think the challenge is sometimes we, faith, we, we come to our faith in Jesus like we do Common Table. I love Common Table. I think it is great. We have Common Table on the 30th this month. It's going to be a Halloween blowout, you know. You just give all your old Halloween decorations, right? And what do we do there? We take things that no longer has value to us, that might have value to other people, and we surrender it. We sacrifice it. And, and this is true. I mean, this is true of me. I come to Jesus often in the same way. Sure, you can have these things that I no longer need. 
He's like, no, I want your new stuff. I want the stuff you've been dreaming about. I want all of you. We instinctively prefer religion that asks for very little. Just a Sunday here or there, some vaguely held beliefs, nostalgia for some old songs or old smells. Right? If I say church basement, some of you are like, "Mm, I could smell that right now. They had mauve paint at my church, and all I ever smelled was crusty old paint. It was an old church. I think a lot of people had died in it. It smelled like it. But the spirit fell. But life in the kingdom doesn't ask for just a little. Life in the kingdom asks for all of who you are. Friends, it is costly, it is sacrificial, and it is surrender. And there will be people that can tell you, oh, no, it doesn't take too much. Just, Just give us 10% and we'll make you comfortable. And then you have the hope of eternity. But Jesus wants all of you. And this next level surrender makes even Jesus' followers nervous. Did you see that in the story? You know, if the righteous Pharisee can't get in, if the rich guy can't get in, then who can be saved? And Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible with God. There's still hope. Then Peter, I love Peter. He's my favorite because he sometimes says things. It's like, oh, Peter. And you all do. You know, I sometimes say things. You're like, oh, Jonathan. But he's trying to assure himself and the other disciples in this moment. He's like, oh, well, we left our homes and followed you. And Jesus gives the third truly statement. He says, he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The kingdom is more valuable. We are the family values crowd. And so it it should make you nervous when Jesus says you might give up your family. And the question comes, what are we willing to surrender for the sake of the kingdom? You guys, I'm I'm not a salesman. I can tell you of the surpassing worth of Jesus, but I am not sure you would be convinced without a work of the Holy Spirit. So we come to this and we repent of holding things so tightly. We ask the Spirit to reveal the value of Jesus to us, that he would be your treasure. We just live surrendered to him. As the song goes, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Here I am, all of me. Take my life, it's all for thee. And the way of the kingdom is humble, dependent, surrender. And I know we've gone long, but Luke moves right into this practical outworking of these three truths. Right, a blind man carrying, crying out to Jesus for mercy. They tried to silence him, but he cried out all the more. And he says to him, your faith has made you well. And he gave praise to God. He's humble. Then the wee little man, Zacchaeus, 
the real life tax collector, and he's small in stature, which is childlike, right? He's dependent. He climbs up the sycamore tree to see Jesus, and Jesus invites himself over to his house. And then without prompting, while they're having dinner, Zacchaeus surrenders. He gives up his wealth to the poor, and he makes reparations to those that he's defrauded. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. There's these examples of humility, dependence, and surrender right in the story for us. And that being the case, why not say the way into the kingdom is humility, dependence, and surrender? And the, the truth is the kingdom is not built by our humility, by our dependence, by our surrender, though it is lived out in this way by us. But here's the kicker. It's Jesus's humility dependence and surrender that brings us into the kingdom and taking the 12 he said to them see we are going up to jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise in Humility, he is mocked and shamed, robbed of all of his adornment and clothing. In dependence, he submits to the will of the Father to satisfy the wrath against sin for us. In surrender, he gives up all of himself. He gives up his body, his blood to declare salvation finished on the cross for us. All to prove that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The kingdom is at hand. It is built upon materials stronger than straw, than wood or brick. It is built upon the body and blood of Jesus. Will your sin humble you to cry out for mercy? Will you depend fully on Christ's Grace for life and eternity. Will you see Jesus as that surpassing worth and surrender everything to him? Because he did it all for you. You were worth it to him. And now we live secure in his hands, humble, dependent, and surrendered. So let's go on building. With that which withstands the blows of the mighty big bad wolf. With that which keeps us for all eternity. And that which calls us free. Today salvation has come to this house. Let's praise our king. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you've unpacked in this, these encounters, in this story... And this, this prophetic reality of your going to Jerusalem to face the cross. You've given us so much of humility, of dependence, of surrender. And we come in this place, very accomplished people, very intelligent people, wealthy people by all definitions of the word. 
And we humbly come recognizing our sin. Say, have mercy on us. We come carried by you in dependence to seek your blessing. And Lord, we surrender all of who we are. Because you surrendered all of who you are to us. Would you be glorified in our lives? Continue to transform us by the truth of your gospel that your kingdom would go forth in our city and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.